0: So this is the section, um, the chapter about the training of the nuns community, and this section is called "Venerable Father." Although Lempereur was supportive in times of genuine crisis, he was also careful to avoid appearing too easily available when problems arose that he wanted them. To learn to deal with themselves. Chan Jung recalled that one day, while a nun was practicing walking meditation, she had an extremely realistic vision of a huge snake wrapping itself around her body. Unsurprisingly, she fainted. A fellow Merchi, discovering her lying prostrate on the walking path, called for help. More Merchis rushed forward, and as the reviving nun blurted out the story of the monster snake, a minor panic ensued. Two of the senior Mechis rushed over to Lumpur's Kuti to request his assistance. nun was very distressed. Would he please come and see her straight away? Without expressing the slightest concern, Lumpur said, Maybe she's already dead. Look after her for now. I'll come over later on. (laughs) It's a serious amount of cool. Many hours after the incident, when the excitement had died down, he paid a visit. this next section is called, Kindness at a Distance. Lumpur has seen monasteries consumed by sexual scandals. He was determined to prevent the same thing happening at Wat Papong. The strict segregation of the monks and the Mechis he insisted upon was based on his understanding of how the most innocent of relationships could, in an unguarded moment and against all the better judgment of either side, develop into something more serious. His solution was, figuratively, to keep everyone well away from the edge of the cliff. Although the policy of separation meant that the Mechis saw little of Lumpur, that they would undoubtedly have appreciated seeing more of him, they did not expect it. They had little sense of entitlement, having grown up in a world in which the separation between monks and women, whether lay or ordained, was a given. Generally, the only time the Mechis would enter the main area of the monastery was early in the morning, while the monks were on arms round. The Mechis, eyes downcast, would walk through the forest to the kitchen, where they would help prepare food. As soon as the meal was over, they would return to the Mechis section. If, for some reason, Mechis should meet a monk on the path, monastic etiquette required them to squat down with hands in Anjali and look studiously at the ground until the monk, also studiously looking elsewhere, had passed. The absence of even a hint of sexual scandal at Wat over the years did much to consolidate its good reputation. But newly arrived monks like Achen Jan could experience something akin to a culture shock. So this is Lumpojan speaking. When I first came to live at Wat I didn't know the customs and conventions. I passed a group of Mechis and greeted them loudly. Hello there, what are you all up to? The Mechis looked very shocked and rushed off into the forest. I was baffled. I thought, ooh, what is it about forest monasteries? The monks and novices ignore you? Even the Chis won't speak to you. Somebody must have told Lumpur that the new monk was doing a lot of improper things, like talking to Chis. The next day he explained things to me, and so after that I understood the way that things were done. As time went on, a number of Wat Pa branch monasteries opened Chi sections, and these were run on the same principles as the one at Wat Pa although much smaller monasteries usually required some relaxation of the segregation policy. To guard against the risk of any impropriety, a Sangha regulation was subsequently laid down restricting the establishment of Meiji sections to those monasteries in which the abbot had spent at least 20 years in the robes. And that's also um, one of the um, the training rules that, that we have uh, in terms of the uh, so teaching and giving advice to the nuns' community that uh, when... Um, uh, in the um, original uh, uh, standards established for the relationship between the the, the Bhikkhus community and the bhikkhuni community, there would be a uh, uh, every fortnight, one of the uh, senior monks would be invited to go and give instruction to the nuns community, and that monk had to be over twenty years uh, in the, in the robes in order to be a uh, an instructor, uh, an advisor for the nuns community. So Lumpur was using that particular standard, that, that framework um, as a sort of a, as a, a way to inform the, um, the establishment of uh, that kind of a training situation. By the beginning of the 1980s, Lungphur's health was in serious decline, and his visits to the Mechi section became more irregular. With his influence waning, problems in the Mechi community began to increase. Some of the Me'e Chis felt an, a sense of loss and concern for the future. On one occasion, shortly before his illness, he explained to them, So this is Lumpur speaking here. I stay aloof from everyone, aloof from all the Mechis who come to live here. Everyone is free to speak to me, but I don't speak to everyone. Even so, I feel an inner accord with all of you. It's called dhammik love. It's not a worldly type of love where you have to keep saying nice things to each other all the time, but one in which any problems that arise are discussed in an appropriate way. There are some of you here that I've never spoken to at all. don't think it's because you're Mechis. These days the monastery is very large. There are monks and novices that I've never spoken to individually. It's difficult for one person to oversee such a big community. That's why, as far as possible, it's important that everyone takes responsibility for themselves and their practice. So th- uh, that was uh, very much the same from the, from the monk side as well. That um, uh, As things uh, sort of, uh, developed, and they, by the time that Lung Por's health had really caved in, I think there was about uh, sixty or seventy branch monasteries by that time. So there were there were uh, you know, many many people who were encountering the the teaching. They would maybe be um, up with uh, lumpokun in the Chiang Rai area, or in the central Thailand with uh, uh, Ajahn um, uh, uh, at um, uh, Ajahn Chai's monastery, and they would maybe have never even been to Ubon province, and so they would have. Come into the community. Their faith had arisen, and they'd, they'd taken, taken the robes. And Yalungpochar was a sort of fabled figure off in the, uh, in the the main monastery in Ubon, so that there was more and more people that were coming into the community that had never actually had that, that personal contact with him. But I feel like also what he's expressing here is very is very accurate, um, and uh, it's a. a uh, uh, I think a, a good way of describing that quality. So, some earlier today, someone was asking me, you know, do you uh, do you get lonely? And I said no. And they said, uh, <laughs> you know, don't don't you miss uh, don't you miss your friends or your, your kind of uh, your peers in the in the monastery? I said no. I mean, when if uh, Ajahn Sumedho or Ajahn Sajita, Ajahn Pasano are around, I enjoy their company. But if they're not around, I don't miss them. I don't. I, if I don't, if they're not here, I don't think of them. <laughs> and. Uh, and so, in, in, and I said, well, you know, he's your Ajahn, you know, the people say, sure, don't you, you must miss Lumpur Chai. you must miss Ajahn tomato.' I said, no, <laughs> and you can see that, well, it's really disrespectful, said, well, no, it's not disrespectful, it's just, I don't miss anybody, <laughs> that, uh, that you're, you're relating to people in a, on a different kind of um, mode, isn't that sense of, of a dependency or a possessiveness, so that, um, yeah, and I'm... I'm Quite happy to say that recorded, and <laughs> I've said it to to, to uh, numerous, uh, also to you know, my other friends. I, I'm sure, I know that Lumpur Sumedha would be delighted to know that I don't miss him when he's not around. <laughs> it's hard, it's hard, it's hard. <laughs> yeah. So that uh, it's a different way of uh, of um, of relating to your your kind of connection with other people, and that um, so uh, then in the the idea of feeling lonely. I mean, I must say that when people ask that lonely? Are you kidding? <laughs> yeah, but, uh, I'm very happy. I'm quite a gregarious type. I'm quite happy to be around lots of people, and uh, I don't find crowds uh, oppressive or difficult, but uh, I, I really enjoy my own company, so I'm very happy just to be by myself in my kutia. I can stay there for weeks and weeks without seeing anyone. So a mark. <laughs> so... Uh, the, uh, uh, the way that Lumpur is speaking here, I think that represents very very well that, uh, that quality of a, a non-possessive, or a, what they call a liberative love, what he calls a dhammic love. Uh, so uh, uh, I call it a, also a liberative love, like a, a love that lets go, like the, um, the Brahma Viharas, Metta Karuna Mudita Upeka, loving-kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy and equanimity, they are they different kinds of uh, of emotion, uh, uh, loving kindness and compassion and so forth. They they are emotional qualities, but they are they uh, they are qualities of emotion that are uh, say c- they contribute to a, a liberation to a letting go to a, a non possessiveness. So it's a it's a kind of c- a caring that I- is not dependent. It's a caring that that helps people to be liberated rather than feel that they've. Uh, they're sort of trapped in a in a place, or that the ajahn's got to be um, uh, got to be sort of kept uh, kept in a good mood, or you have got to sort of say things that will make the ajahn happy, or, or that the, you got to do things that will please that person. But one of the, quali- the qualities of Lumphor Cha was, and I've mentioned many many times, being around him was that he absolutely didn't need people to to like him or to approve of him. He didn't need that sort of affirmation, and if people tried to flatter him uh, or to say, oh Lumpur, you're so wise, you're so wonderful, you're the the greatest Ajahn in Thailand, they would usually get a very blunt (laughs) uh, response of, uh, uh, he'd make some kind of wisecrack and just sort of um, uh, uh, hand that back to the person uh, um, uh, and just not receive that, not not accept that or not feed that in any way. He didn't need to be flattered or um, or, or as a uh, sense uh, uh, approved of but he always came from that place of, uh, of clarity and so he was incredibly caring, extraordinarily generous with his time and uh, he would, after the meal time he would receive which in, in Thailand the meal offering is usually about 8 or 8.30 in the morning so from about 9.30 or 10 in the morning he would be under his kuti and just receiving a constant stream of people, usually all day long often well into the, the evening and the night so he was uh, he was completely available for people, but he didn't need to have anyone around. <laughs> he didn't he didn't uh, sort of uh, feed upon that sense of c- having company or or flattery uh, of any any sort. There's also a passage in the suttas where um, uh, I forget exactly where it is, um, but it, it talks about the way that the Buddha received uh, received guests and related to people questioning. He so said it, it's always the case. That whenever whenever people draw close to to the Buddha and have uh, questions and uh, want to spend time with him, he is always looking for a way to bring the conversation to an end. So he's never looking to kind of carry on the chat just just for the sake of uh, of entertaining himself. I forget the, the exact wording, but it's like he's always um, uh, uh, looking to to help things to be wrapped up, not in an impatient way, but he's not. Needing people's company, or just sort of making chit chat, just for the sake of it. But it's, it's uh, looking towards a, a an, an ending of the the dialogue, so that people can go off and, as it says in the sutras, over and over again. Now is the time for you to do as you see fit. Bye. <laughs> so in English, I say, well, I think that yeah, that's enough. Or very good. It's, uh you can you can uh, you can say a lot with uh, with. Uh, with in, in, in body language, but I, I feel that that, uh, uh, that quality of the Buddha, he'd had no aversion or no negativity, but it's just not trying to extend that contact just for the sake of, of having contact, just for the sake of having company, or just um, spinning things out because of, uh, sort of sort of social niceties, or, or just um, being lost in a, a particular sort of convivial mood. The next section is called No Favorites. Luang had noted how, in other monasteries, competition for the teacher's attention amongst the resident Mechis, and the monks as well, I would say, <laughs> could lead to jealousies that undermine the harmony of their community. So I don't think it's just the women folk that are uh, uh, subject to this, as it can very easily be the case amongst the male community. Uh, <coughs> competition for the teacher's attention uh, could lead to jealousies that undermine the harmony of the community he maintained a strictly impartial stance towards them. Many of the chiefs were especially impressed by how he refrained from singling out his mother for any special attention or privileges. In the culture in which they lived, the willingness to treat one's mother, just as one member of a larger group, was seen as an unusual achievement. And uh, as a footnote on that says, A notable exception to this came with the elaborate funeral that Lumpur arranged for Mare Pim, his mother, on her death in 1976, which featured many days of merit-making activities dedicated to her, I think they had 99 local uh, local men all uh, took the um, the Anagarika precepts, took the eight precepts, and became Anagarikas for the the period of, of time. He built a whole papier-mâché mountain, where the temple at Wat Bapong is now. Um, they they spent weeks and weeks making uh, sort of, uh, they would weave ba- baskets, and then covering the baskets with papier mache, and built them into a whole mountain. And Mepim's body was in the coffin in the middle of this mountain. And had uh, an entrance and an exit for women visitors, and an entrance and an exit for male visitors, and Pim's coffin in the middle. And so they, they created this whole papier mache sort of mountain in the middle of the monastery, with, with the kind of forests and caves and tigers and yogis and rishis sitting in the caves and whatnot. And, and then uh, when it was the, um, the time, uh, and maybe we'll talk about her funeral uh, later on, but uh, the, um, when it was time for her funeral, he, um, they, uh, they, they lit the fire and the whole, the whole mountain burnt. And um, with Mepim, Mepim's body at the center. So that was also one of the um, big uh, Sangha projects. And then the temple, the, the, the oppositor hall, was built right on top of the spot where Mepim's body was cremated. That's where, that's where the uh, the kind of the main Wapapong opposite hall, the main temple is, is right where she, uh, she had her mountain. This impartiality was not a blanket indifference. On the contrary, as Mechi Bunyu recalled, Lumpur showed a, a consistent concern for the welfare of every one of the Mechis. This is Mechi Bunyu speaking. The monastery was still quite unknown then, and not many people came to offer food. Usually, the only fruit we'd have would be the small amount that came from the Mechis garden. One day, a group of laypeople came to help with a work project. One of them planted a pineapple shoot near the kitchen and it grew up into a pineapple, and very big it was too, like the ones that nowadays they bring up from the southeast. Pineapples were rare then. Every day when we went to the kitchen, we'd look at the pineapple and be thinking how big it was becoming, and wondering what Lumpur would have done with it when it was ripe. All of us were looking forward to taste it, because we'd never eaten a pineapple before in our lives. Then one day, the pineapple disappeared. <gasps> oh no! I wailed in my mind. Where's it gone? Mechi Bungu found out the next morning. The pineapple had appeared in the kitchen, neatly cut into fifteen equal pieces, one for each of the eight monks and seven Mechis in the monastery. Lung was not idealistic about sense restraint, For monastics training themselves to detach from sense pleasures, enjoyment outlives indulgence and is supplanted by equanimity through insight, not by acts of will. For almost all the members of a monastic community subsisting on a bare diet, a slice of an exotic fruit is a treat. Lampore did not condemn it as worldly foolishness and was content to ensure that everyone in the community, including the Mechis, had an equal share in this treat. It was this kind of consistent but understated consideration one that belied his forbidding demeanour that endeared him to the Mechis. Lumpur's concern for the Mechis was clearly apparent to the monks, not least through his regular exhortations on the fair distribution of food, and he would remind them always to bear in mind the hard work and sacrifice of the Mechis that made possible the meals that they ate, and to make sure that there was always sufficient food sent back to the kitchen. He said that it would be very bad karma if they took, too, if they took so much but those who had prepared the food went without. So there's one supply of food that would come over to the monks first. The monks would, uh, would hand out the food uh, for themselves, and the rest would go back to be shared by the nuns' community. So, and and that, at that time, there was only 15 members in the, the community. And so, as he said, if, uh, if the monks kind of took, mu- took too much and were sort of filling their bowls too full so that there was a few little scraps went back to the nuns, he, was, uh, he would not approve of that uh, at all. So, as he said, it would be very bad karma if they took so much that those who had prepared the food went without. The emphasis on fairness and impartiality extended to all of the requisites. Mechibunyu recalled the distribution of cloth. This is her speaking. Lumpur would distribute the cloth himself. After he would arranged a pile for each nun, the bell would be rung, and the Mechis would go up to, to the raised platform in order of seniority and take her cloth. Afterwards, we compare the number of pieces, the quality of the cloth, its fineness or coarseness. They would all be exactly the same. Though so I feel this is an extremely important um, principle, that of, of impartiality, of uh, having no favourites. And, so, uh, uh, and I, I feel that in terms of community life, that's extremely important, and particularly someone in a position of leadership. Um, so for most of the community, it's... Uh, it's not a, a big issue but particularly if you do have responsibility like if you're the the nun in charge of the the store cupboard or you or the monk who's the giving out the lodgings um or the you know the storekeeper and so forth or you know you're um the uh, uh, you're an anagaric or anagarikar with responsibility in the kitchen that this quality of of having no favorites and impartiality is is very very important and um it's uh, as uh, Mechi Bunyu describes here and and uh, is sort of uh, uh, expressed over and over again in this account. This was something that Lumpur made a, a, a big uh, emphasis upon. And uh, for myself, I, I feel that's a, that it's a very, very uh, valuable uh, and a, a um, kind of essential quality for community harmony. In my own family, um, you know, my parents were not quote-unquote religious people at all. They, my father actually would, ref, would refuse to set foot inside a, a church. So they weren't uh, ostensibly religious at all, but they were very uh, uh, very fair-minded and, and uh, good-hearted people. And one of the things between my, myself and my sisters was it was always uh, absolutely fair shares for all. They, they didn't express any kind of favoritism with us as, as children. Our two, two elder sisters... And um, that was uh, it was always the case right from the, uh, the beginning of our childhood that everyone got the same deal. there was no no favoritism, and we were all very different we had very different interests and were involved in different, different things. but our, our, uh, our parents were uh, uh, were really um, thorough and sort of diligent in making sure everyone was was treated equally and that they didn 't have any kind of um, Favoritism, and so uh, f- and nowadays uh, it's it's not uncommon. Uh, I meet a lot of people, and people are asking for spiritual advice on retreats or visiting here or in the monastic community, and uh, it it continues to startle me how in some families people were uh, were treated very unfairly, either that they were the, the the least favorite child, or the one that was sort of that was you know told you. Know, we 're not going to waste any money sending you to a good school because it would just be a, just be a waste you know <laughs> your, your, your your sister's the only one who's worth supporting, so she uh, she 's the one we're going to send to a good school and actually being told that as a little child by your by your parents or or that um that uh, you know your your brother's a really smart one he 's going to go somewhere you know, you're you 're uh, a bit of a failure so um uh, i'm not, not sure what you 're going to do with your life but um you yeah we're not going to put any, uh, uh, any uh, make any effort to, to help you out, you, you look after yourself. And growing up with that kind of, of bias I, I feel is extraordinarily painful and makes, uh, makes things very, very difficult. Similarly, it can be that someone was the favoured one that was treated very specially and then is, has a, uh, a sense of privilege or entitlement that they, you know, they assume that they're the, they're the chosen one or they're great or they're fantastic or they're special. Because they've been told that all their life, and then <laughs> so they can have a, a, a problems with an inflated ego, or having been told they're special and great, and being given the the the, 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 uh, the extra extra good treatment, feeling embarrassed about that, and feeling regrets that their sisters and brothers didn't get uh, didn't get a, 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 a equal shares or a fair treatment, so. Um, and also I've seen that in monasteries where uh, a teacher, the, the, uh, the senior person in the monastery, has favourites or always spends time with particular people or has that kind of um, ones that are, 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 are close to them that they, that they favour and that they, they praise and they, they make much of and other ones are sort of pushed aside or criticised or I- ignored. Uh, that um, Where I've seen that happening, it's, it, it really is, a, I feel, a destructive uh, quality and that it's really important if you're in a position of, of responsibility not just as a the head of a group but if you whether you're looking after the the, the larder or the stores or the you uh, know or whatever your responsibility is the the uh, looking after the transport you know, lay people too you know if it's your if you're the transport coordinator they say well she's my friend so i want her to go in that really nice vehicle and have someone who's a really reliable driver and i don't really care about him anyway you can sort of Go in the worst vehicle and that doesn't really matter who drives you know so that favoritism in, in all its um, in all its in all those domains I feel is very uh, unskillful and to be avoided so it, certainly there are people that we find it easier to to like and uh, and uh, other people that it's, it, we feel a sense of alienation from or we can't really relate to them but um, uh, Lumpa Cha is an extremely good example that he was uh, completely fair and, and equal. That uh, and sometimes there were people in the monastery who were, um, you know, very um, chaotic characters. That the monks who who really misbehave themselves or who were uh, always getting into arguments with other people and and um, you know, Lumpur would. Uh, Uh, would treat both the people who were difficult and the people who were were the the recipients of that difficulty, he would deal with the situation and work with with, uh, the, um, say, inappropriate behavior of someone who'd been a storekeeper and then be giving out all of the the good quality cloth to their friends and and denying the the good cloth to other people that they didn't like or didn't, didn't get along with. Uh, yeah, Lumpur would take care of the situation, but he would treat the people quite, quite equally and quite fairly, and that um, he would uh, he would see oh, that you know that uh, that monk's got a, a you know a, a bit of a problem because of um, certain conditioning, so that that needs to be uh, 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 say appreciated or taken into into account, taken into consideration, so that it's a. Uh, uh, it's something that is very, very common in the ordinary living world and society that people are, have favourites uh, in the family in the workplace, and, and that it's um, uh, it's very easy just to sort of spend time or, or gravitate towards the people that that uh, you approve of or you like or you're inspired by. But uh, in terms of, of community life, the sangha is a, a unified assembly, and that the the kind of um, spirit of of that uh, unity, unification, I feel is is very much supported by the sense of of having no favorites and uh, not give, not giving people preferential treatment, and that um, uh, so I do my I do my best to to sustain that, and um, so that and, you know sometimes people do a a, a a good job, sometimes they don't do a good job, you know, so that oftentimes Cha would take as his attendant. The, the the monks who were the most incompetent, the ones who were almost guaranteed to kind of destroy his robes when they washed them, or, or that would always kind of break the broom handle when they were trying to clean his kuti, or that they never quite got washed his washed his bowl in a in a in a in, a, in, a, in, a, in a, an efficient way, the most sort of uh, unmindful and um, kind of cack handed um, people who are sort of clumsy and tending to break things. He said, okay. He would take them on as his his upatak, his attendant, to sort of draw them close and to, to help train them and to to give a quality a, a support. but as soon as they got too inflated i like know, Lumpur's upatak. You know, really has <laughs> got you know, he 's got all the time in the world for me then off you know, to you know, to a sort of famously challenging branch monastery so any questions thoughts on Anyone complaining that I'm treating them unfairly? <laughs> yes, Margaret. Was yeah, it the many communities around different branch monasteries in Thailand? Or standards are the same still? As you said, the basic standards were the same. If there was a smaller group... Then there might not be such a rigid separation between the, the nuns and the monks. If, like, in a smaller branch monastery, if, like, there's, there's three nuns and five monks in a in a small place, then just the practicalities of living would mean that it needed to be a bit more interaction because we're just trying to take care of the of the the mechanics of, of living. So, as uh, Ajahn Jai Saras said, that that strict separation might be a bit um, less uh, rigorously. Uh, observed, but uh, the, the essential—I um, mean—that that list of of um, the 20, whatever it was, 20, uh, 24, 21—sort um, uh, of rules and regulations for the nuns' community—that would be circulated, just as all the branch monasteries had the same um, sort of—you know—the rules and regulations for Wat Bopong. So that would be. There and be printed up and posted, so everyone would have that as a as a fundamental standard in in all the different branches. Do they still get education in a way, or are they still supported in some way, like it? Or uh, it would depend on the the the, uh, the places. I think um, the uh, people tend to, to go where they can find the resources that are helpful to them. So there, be some quality of uh, support and education. I think I think nowadays also it's more common for nuns to do the, the Dhamma study program, the Naktam, uh, that they do the, the Naktam studies, so actually the academic study of the suttas and uh, uh, that as well. Um, but uh, it would vary from place to place and uh, the, the disposition of the, the particular abbot. So so uh, say uh, with uh, Lumpur Anaik, uh, what Ba Sangam? Yeah, you know, he was very well, very well known, very well respected as a teacher, and would, and would be be ready to give a, a lot of time and attention to the nuns' community as well as the monks' community. Similarly, Limpur Jan, So Limpur Jan I think he usually had more nuns than monks at, at his monastery, because uh, he was ready to give a lot of time and attention for for their community. So, but it, it it varies from place to place, just like with the monks' communities. It's uh, each place has its own dynamic. So, like, I, I don't know if any. Uh, I think Ammarahti is the only place where you get the abbot giving a daily reading to, during the winter retreat. So, but yeah, so that uh, it's every place has its own sort of setup, its own dynamic, and its own. And people are drawn. They, they the, the. the, the, the um, the, the kind of tone or the quality, the atmosphere of a place is often uh, what attracts people, or the geography of it. It's a cooler place, or it's a warmer place, or they don't like to be around so many people, so they want to be in a place with a much smaller number. So there's a lot of different factors that draw people to a particular place, and so they, the, the, the aspect of, of instruction or, or sort of Dhamma teaching might be, is just one part of that really. John, I thought you did some reading in Apayakiri? Yes, yeah. I don't know if they still do. Uh, when, when was it? Like winter retreat. Winter retreat, yeah. So uh, Ajahn Pasana and I would take it in turn. So I do two weeks, and uh, and then he would do two weeks, and we <laughs> set up. Gun. We'd trade off through the over the three months. The, the same book? Uh, yeah, we would be yeah. So we would be using the same text, but uh, um, and then we would just discuss with each other what do you think would be good for a winter retreat reading. We'd sort of figure something out between the two of us, and then we do two weeks on, two weeks off, each of us. I don't know if they still do, but... Uh, yes, Noriko. Um, I think it's very rare in Thailand, or once and once, to see like a person like this from some world. So I'm wondering if any visiting ones from Thailand have any uncomfortable... The short answer is yes: <laughs> um, Well it's, it's very unusual for them at first um, and so that uh, it's generally been the case that then they go oh my goodness you've know, you got but, uh, you know, the nuns and monks community um, so close together so it, and it used to be a, a uh, Amravati for the mealtime every day. You have the, the monks down this side and the nuns down that side. and you sit facing each other for the meal every day. So w- when the uh, visiting Ajahn's came from Thailand, it's like, oh my goodness, this is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But then uh, also, you know, because of, of the whole um, style of Cha's approach, uh, then rather than than sort of taking and getting a negative reaction and, and abiding in that, then they say, well. Kind of take a look, see, see, what, see how this works. This is different. I'm in a foreign country. This is different. Different values, different customs, different forms. So Ajahn Sumedho is a very uh, highly reputable uh, monk He's, and someone who's uh, very trustworthy. So he chooses to do it this way. So uh, okay, let's take a look and, and see how it works. And then um, it's, uh so it's often been that that kind of. Um, a learning curve, as they say, uh, when when people first come, it's it's a bit unusual, and uh, and uh, and yet over time. So say for example, uh, a few years ago, uh, Lumpur Sopon came. We invited him to come and spend the the rains retreat with us. He's the abbot of a monastery in Ayutthaya, and uh, so you know, he was he was very startled. The, the, you know the first. Um, I mean he would, uh, usually he, he uh, didn't come to the evening puja um, and I'd invited the nuns to, to lead the puja that evening, he came along to the puja and so then uh, the the 7.30 came and then you know, Ajahn Sundra went up to light the incense and candles and you could see when <laughs> <laughs> It was a first <laughs> you know, but uh, also he could. He had the, the kind of mindfulness and wisdom to recognise. Obviously, this is a, this is what happens here. This is a normal thing here. Um, and so he'd been along to the puja once or twice before. So he'd seen uh, been, he'd seen me go up and light like, the candles and incense and so like. So um, uh, so it was a bit of a, 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 a bit of a shock and a bit startling uh, early on in in the Vasa when he saw that for the first time. But then again, just just like with um, you know, Lumbert John came and spent a year here, and he saw how we did things, and okay, was well, a bit different, but oh, yeah, things seem to to work very well. And that and asking Then they ask him, do you have any problems with the nuns and monks falling in love with each other? And he said no. <laughs> <laughs> it's a it's a uh, people are very very highly motivated here, and it doesn't that, that's never really been a, a problem, extremely rare, and. Um, and so, uh, in the West, this um, sharing of duties and responsibilities and and uh, leadership of things is much more ordinary to do it this way. And so then, over time, uh, then they would get used to it. So that it was interesting with Lumpur Sopon that uh, he, uh, at first he was sort of a bit, oh, I'm not sure about this, well, this is all very different. And not just the you know, nuns leading the pujas, but uh, other other aspects of uh, of the way we did things, but um, by the uh, by the end of the rains retreat, Ajahn Congrat went with him to a a, a a Thai sangha meeting. Like all of the Thai monasteries in Europe gathered together for a meeting. I think it was in Germany. Lumphor Lumpur, Lumpur Sopon was he's a very forthright person. So he, was, he was telling all these. The, the Thai monks at this meeting, you know, you should do it like they do it at Amravati, It's much better there. You know, just, <laughs> we're in the West. We should do things that they, the way they do them in the West. You know, this is it was, it's not good to be attached to our our customs in Thailand. You know, we have to adapt and we have to take take account of where we are. And to if we want to bring the Dhamma to the West, then actually we need to pay attention to how they do things in the West and and make uh, make changes in in the uh, uh. so Congress. That's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, yeah, the uh, Lumpur Sopon, who's you know very uh, conservative and, and uh, you know very highly respected member of the Wapapong community, sort of carrying the torch for the way that we were doing things here within a three-month period. So that was I uh, was uh, very uh, very pleasing to hear that, but but also that um, uh, you know. It, it, you know, you expect people who've grown up with a whole different format to be, um, to be kind of um, startled by the way things are done. And, it was, and I think for, for it was they, they said when he first came to, to, to Britain in 1977, he did a lot of, <laughs> how does this work, or what, what, what's, what's the protocol? Or, and he'd sometimes ask, he says say, What's this? What's this hand-shaking thing? What's this? The people people stick their hand out. What what is that? Because you know, like you know, he hadn't seen people shaking hands. Yeah, you know, he he'd never. You know, I don't think he'd been to that many in Bangkok when he was a little child growing up. They were not. They weren't the travelling movies. There was no TV, no electricity, so. A, he wouldn't have seen uh, anybody ever shaking, two people shaking hands before. So he sort of saw that and what, what is this thing, is, is, that, is that, and, then, and then, so then Lumpur Samaria said, well that's how they kind of make anjali, they, they, it's always the right hand, the right hand to right hand, that's how they do it, it's not left hand, it's right hand to right hand. Okay, so why do they do that? Well, well it's the custom of how, how people greet each other. And he wanted to kind of be informed. And, they, okay, and so, so, how do you do it? And <laughs> <kind of laughs> Have these sort of test runs with uh, <laughs> to, uh, how to shake hands. Uh, so that he wanted to know. He'd never seen it before. I mean, but he could see, okay, this is something that these people do. So. And it was very touching in, um, in uh, Venerable Father, Paul Brighter's account of his time as Varipanyo, um, as a disciple of... Lumpur Cha and his recollections of Lumpur Cha's teachings and when he finally got uh, Lumpur Cha to agree to allowing him to disrobe which took a long time a lot of negotiation and then finally Lumpur had allowed him to, to disrobe and he was um, uh, and he was at Wat Pananachat, and he was and uh, the, the uh, newly disrobed Paul Brighter sort of in his shirt and trousers and uh, and his <coughs> He paid, uh, paid his respects to, to Lumpur, and, and Lumpur's was uh, about to leave to go back to Gwapwapong. Lumpur turned around and stuck his hand out. <laughs> and then and Paul said, so he's looking at his hand, and, he said, and he's like, what? He said, shake hands! Shake hands! You're, you're a farang, you remember how to do this? He says, we never shook hands. And so it was very, very touching. He kind of uh, adopted the custom. He's a layman now, he's a farang, okay, they shake hands, okay. And that was uh, very, another good example of sort of Lumpur Chow kind of really uh, um, uh, appreciating where his his disciples were at and sort of ready to. He wasn't happy that Warapanya had disrobed. He really made him work for it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but when he had done, then he was going That was one of his ways of giving his blessing. So the next section is called to be a mechi. Women applying to join the Mechi community at Wak were required to undergo a vetting procedure, with senior family members expected to act as sponsors and guarantors of their good character. So that's the sponsorship is about character. So the most basic criteria for acceptance into the community was that the woman should not be pregnant and this was the chief reason why women accepted into the community would be expected to undergo a probationary period as a laywoman. The probationary period also provided an opportunity for the senior MHEs to observe the applicant's conduct and personality at close quarters and to judge their suitability. The exacting daily schedule and strict regulations played a major role in weeding out the unsuitable candidates. Women applying to join the Mechi community at Wapapong were not expected to make commitments as to the length of time they would remain. Some became Mechis for a limited period, perhaps a month. Some intended to spend the rest of their lives in the monastery and left after a few days. Then there were those that came for a short time and ended up staying for the rest of their lives. Most of the Mechis, like the monks, came from peasant farming backgrounds and were used to an active, practical life. They usually found the forest monastic life in which formal meditation periods alternate with the mindful performance of communal tasks, such as sweeping, cleaning, cooking, and tending the garden, provided a good balance. For those who felt that enlightenment was still far away, accumulating merit through wholesome activities provided a reassuring compensation for the frustrations of meditation. Growing vegetables and preparing food constituted the Mechis' primary contribution to the overall functioning of the monastery. As the number of monks and nuns increased to almost a hundred, it became a major daily effort. The work was done in noble silence, punctuated only by unavoidable orders or requests. Subtle points of etiquette concerning such matters as the, concerning such matters as the use of pots and the frequency of hand-washing helped to keep the nuns grounded in the present moment. Cleanliness was an important object of mindfulness for everyone. The Mechis also contributed to most of the major work projects that took place in the monastery over the years. Perhaps their proudest achievement was the firing of the many thousands of bricks that the monks used to construct the monastery wall. That was about 100,000, I believe. So they cast the bricks, um, they made moulds, and then cast the, 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 uh, the bricks and then baked them. And, uh, and that was the what forms the Wapapong Wall up to this present day. Tudong. At Wapapong, the Mechis were expected to keep many of the Dutanga ascetic practices incorporated into the monks' training. They ate only one meal a day in a single vessel, in their case, a white enamel bowl. Every observance day, they abstained from lying down and spent the night meditating. Many of them took on special practices, such as fasting or keeping silent, in order to accelerate their efforts in meditation. Although it was not considered safe or socially acceptable for Mechis to go wandering through the countryside on Tudong like the monks, Lumpur did give the more senior nuns opportunities to practice in wild, lonely areas. With the opening of Tamsang Pet Monastery in 1969, and Wat Kuen the following year, so Tamsang Pet is a as a freestanding a, a hill, a, a rocky outcrop um, that was donated to Lumpur and there's a monastery on top and a monastery down below and it's kind of quite uh, wild and rugged and what kuen was a, about a 3,000 acre forest with a, 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 around a um, uh, kuen means a, a dam so it's like a reservoir and then there's huge, huge forest around the, the edges of the reservoir that was uh, donated for him as well so it's like a very, very big wild forest area so uh, what uh, What in the following year, the Sangha acquired large, remote properties where Lungpo would sometimes give permission for groups of Merchis to live out in the forest under their glots and come face to face with their fears of spirits and wild animals. Living under a glot in the forest, without the protection afforded by a Kuti, was a daunting challenge, and only the most mature of the nuns were given this opportunity. On her first such expedition, Mechi Zhang, one of the senior Mechis, recounted with amusement how she had been terrified throughout the night by the eerie sound of what she was sure was a malevolent spirit. The next day, she was the object of some gentle teasing when she found out that what she had been listening to was, in fact, the plaintive sound of a female civet cat abandoned by her mate. Civet cats is a kind of wild cat, a sort of largish, um and... Uh, like a largish wildcat native to the area but once the Mechis had overcome their initial fears of the forest they found like the monks that life under such conditions gave rise to an alertness and enthusiasm for practice that was profoundly energizing so this is um in england the the most um, dangerous creatures are the human beings <laughs> so uh but we have um, you know, the, the in the forests here very very benign the wild animals you have you know badgers and foxes and and such like um, so that they you don't really have that same kind of uh, physical threat from the from the wildlife uh, here in the west um, apart from the humans but um, in uh, other places other countries then you you still uh, have that so people going on Tudong in, uh, uh, say, in parts of Thailand or in, in the U.S. Um, even in the forest at the Abayagiri, they have mountain lions and uh, bears in the forest there. So when I, I remember I went to spend, um, uh, early on in, in the time at Abayagiri forest, uh, forest, I went to um, to spend about a five-day stretch up in the forest just living on water from the stream. Uh, uh, It's it's a big... uh, The forest is about 250 acres, um, but it's extremely rugged. The the average slope is about one in three, so it's uh, it's a really um, uh, kind of wild country, actually. And in those days, we didn't have any trails uh, through most of the forest, so I went and and camped up, put up my gloat, my my umbrella and mosquito net, up by this part of the forest where there was a a year-round stream and um just camped up there uh, for for 5 days just just uh, living on the the water from the stream and it was uh, it was uh, uh, I, I might find myself chuckling at Mechi Jung but I um I too found myself uh, very um anxiously alert to the sound of what, what I became, what I ended up calling the mendocino carnivorous squirrel <laughs> <You> could, <laughs> You can hear the, the squirrels, a lot of squirrels in the forest, jumping through the branches and crashing around in the, in the trees. What's that? What's that? <laughs> so, of course, it, you know, it sounds like a bear or a, a mountain lion, but of course, it, most of the time, it was the Mendocino carnivorous squirrel. And uh, uh, <coughs> there, the, the, there are bears and, and mountain lions around, but I, I didn't actually meet uh, any on, uh, on that occasion So The next section is called Admonishment. One of the guiding principles of monastic life laid down in the Vinaya is that every monk and nun should make themselves open to admonishment from all other members of their community. But mutual admonishment is not an easy ideal to live up to. In Thailand, the cultural emphasis on preserving social harmony through non-confrontation makes it particularly difficult. So that's a cultural style in Thailand is not... Uh, not confronting other people, you have all kinds of ways of going around. <laughs> and, uh, but the, uh, confronting somebody and giving someone direct feedback is something that is uh, socially, culturally uh, uh, challenging, or not common, or not, not usually done in Thailand. So preserving social harmony through non-confrontation makes it particularly difficult. Nevertheless, Longpo would often speak on this topic. One year, during the rains retreat period, Lumpur instructed the Mechi community on this principle in detail. By this time, his health was in decline, and he had been unable to visit the Mechi section as often as he had in previous years. He emphasized the importance of each Mechi learning how to admonish themselves as a foundation for admonishing others. They had to learn how to teach themselves, how to take care of their minds. This is Lumpur speaking here. Before admonishing anyone else, you should admonish yourself. Why? Because if you don't, and that person doesn't accept your admonishment, then you may lose your temper. You have to put yourself in a good frame of mind first. Then, if she scolds you or abuses you, you won't let it affect you. You know you've done the right thing. If it's necessary to admonish someone, and they take it well, then that's good. But if they don't, then that's their affair, not yours. If the person you admonished criticises you, then listen to what they have to say. If she says, you're just jealous of me, ask yourself whether that's true. Investigate it. If it's not, then she's got it wrong, and that's her responsibility. Your practice is to let go, to learn to see everything in terms of tamma. Those who received admonishment were to constantly train themselves to be open to the words of others, even if they seemed unfair or inaccurate. Learning how to deal with praise and blame was an essential element of the path to wisdom. Again, this is Lumpur speaking. You need to learn how to take responsibility for your speech and actions. Then, if you act with a good intention and you're accused of acting with an impure intention, you can be at ease because you know your own mind. Sorry, because you know your own mind. And you know for sure that it's not true. The Buddha taught us to have mindfulness at all times. When you're going to say something, do you have a good intention? What's the purpose of your words? You have to be aware of your actions. Then, when someone says, you spoke improperly, you don't get upset because you considered well before speaking those words. You know your intention was good, and the person who said you did wrong is mistaken. You are at ease. Are you as good as they say? You have to know yourself. Don't believe anyone else. Watch out. They say you're bad, that's someone's words. They say you're good, and it's just words. It's not who you are, only only you know that. We come here to let go. If someone gives you an admonishment, then receive it with a sadhu, glad that you're getting it for free. Whether you're in the right or the wrong, listen. It's through listening that wisdom can arise. He illustrated his advice with his own interpretation of a Zen training method. This was uh, after he came to the the West for the first time. He met a a Zen monk uh, or Zen priest in in London. And so um, uh, that was uh, part of his education in the Zen tradition. And also Ajahn Buddhadasa had translated a couple of of, uh, uh, Zen books, the um, Zen teaching of of Huang Po and also the teachings of Rinzai, I think, into Thai language, so Lumpur Chang actually... Oh no, the, the Sutra of Neng and the and the, um, the Zen teaching of Huang Po were are both translated by Ajahn Buddhadasa into Thai. So again, this is Lumpur speaking. The Zen masters teach their students to reduce their conceit and views. There's not much study involved. If, a, if students start to nod while they're sitting in meditation, The teacher hits them on the head with a long stick. The student says, Thank you, sir, for being so kind as to hit me on the head with your stick. It reminded me of what I'm supposed to be doing. Thank you, sir. Can all of you Mechis living here thank each other for admonition? Give it a try. It takes wisdom. If any of you get drowsy during meditation, then have Mechikampha hit you on the head with a stick (laughs) and then say thank you. Could you do it? understand this point. Mechi Kampfa was actually an American who was living there at that time. The Mechis were to see how valuable it was to receive admonishment and how fortunate they were to be in a situation where they could receive it. Lumpur is speaking again. All of you have an advantage over me. I invite you to admonish me if I do something wrong, but it's difficult for you. Nobody does it because I'm the teacher and you don't dare to. That's why practice as a senior monk is so hard. Sometimes the teacher does something wrong and everyone just lets him carry on doing it without him realising it's wrong. It's difficult for a teacher to find someone to teach him. But all of you are lucky. If you do something wrong, somebody tells you straight away. It's a really good thing. Don't think negatively about it. Try to see that practice is exactly about things like this. If you let go, if you put something down, it comes to a halt. It's no longer heavy. It's the attachment that is heavy. There's also a passage in the the sutras where the the Buddha said, uh, if you are offered a choice between being given a a, a pile of uh, a pile of gold or being uh, offered admonishment, you should accept the you should accept the admonishment. It's far more valuable to you than the pile of gold. So. Uh, that uh, the um, so it comes across in exactly the, the same spirit. Um, yes, can we create it to have the sticks in the temple? <laughs> it's just like one for the one, one for the night. for the cycle, of <laughs> Be careful what you ask for. <laughs> <coughs> <coughs> I'll bear that in mind. Thank you for that suggestion. <laughs> the questions, thoughts, reflections. Um, when well the Sufis first started, the Westerners were they Did they go too long? I'm they couldn't leave the went alone and things like that. Well, they 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 went too long from Chidhurst to Amravati. As a group, yeah. Um, n- never alone, but um, I think um, from fairly early on, there was. I remember uh, those groups of nuns going on too long, usually uh, uh, in a group of three, uh, groups of three, um, but the. Um, that was probably within the first after that uh, initial walk from chithurst to here um i think maybe within the first seven years when people were still still fairly junior while the while the training was being established i don't think it happened in that era but uh um so say from from uh, the the ce community began in eighty three so up to about nineteen ninety so probably about nineteen ninety was when people first started going out, and uh, I remember Agnes Suripania went uh, to Ireland. She was on a two long in Ireland with uh, with Sister Jitindriya and I think maybe Sister Tania. That was around then, like ninety or ninety one, that they went. So it was in. The, but in those first first few years, uh, I don't think there was any any two long. But um, uh, yeah, certainly. The, yeah, and around there's there's been times where you know, they're either organised too long, or so going out without having any kind of fixed plan, fixed route, and that, that's also been done. So, it, um, so I, I certainly would support it, but um, uh, it's finding the time and the <laughs> the uh, the opportunity. But uh, I feel it's it's a very good training. Uh, particularly if you haven't got it uh, arranged as to who you're going to meet up with, or where you're going to, where you're going to uh, find food, or where you're going to sleep, or find a camping place, or a water supply. Those are all very good, uh, say, challenges. I mean, we don't have tigers and elephants and and such like, but um, the general uh, rigours of of living, um, the uh, the demands of the of the body, and, you know, sh- food and shelter and water is uh, is always there. Uh, a question. So it's, uh, it's very. Um, I feel it's a very, very worthwhile practice. Will Abhayagiri or to have a large community in the future? Do you know? Both of them have declared that they won't. No. And um, what's the reason? You have to ask them. Nariko, yes. Just, um, in your experience and observation, or what you hear from other abodes in other monasteries, um, what would be, uh, what are the negative and positive impact of having double communities, like this, compared to the not having any compared to only male monastics and having this kind of very interactive double community what would be the negative and positive impact on well I see it's already after (laughs) 7 (laughs) o'clock I'm not I'm very very bad at short answers but uh, essentially it's that if you have a double community it makes things more complicated Mm. just the the logistics of living together um, both just the mechanics of having separate living places and separate sets of amenities is part of it. Uh, also, the responsibility for um, the uh, having a double community that uh, makes more complications. So, um, for myself, that the advantages I feel um, I've spent virtually, you know, all my monastic life in monasteries with nuns around. Even when I lived at Abayagiri, that a lot of the time from. Uh, Abhayagiri opened in 1996 and then I think uh, just, uh, Ajahn Jatindri uh, and spent time there, Ajahn Sundra, uh, Ajahn Tanasanti was there um, up, you know, for uh, four or five years and then um, there was a, um, a few years when there weren't any nuns there but anyway, most of my monastic life I've lived in places with a women's community so for me it's always kind of normal and I feel that the... Um, uh, the, the sense of, of um, a women's and a men's community uh, operating together it's also a, a, a good example for the, uh, the world and the lay community that you don't have to have uh, a, a, um, a kind of um, an isolated form but you can have a, a living situation where human beings whether they happen to, have, uh, happen to be female or male can, can live together harmoniously and have the attention focused on spiritual qualities so it, just, it to me, it seems a bit more of a well-rounded and, and balanced living situation. So, and I've always been comfortable with it. Also, I grew up in a house full of women. So, so two sisters and my mother. My father was usually traveling in a way, so I, I grew up... Um, personally, I've, uh, it's always been kind of easy and ordinary for me to live with women's company. Other uh, ajans, it's not the case. And so that... Um, that the the attraction of simplicity and uh, the um, just the just the the need to relate to to men and men's dynamics together is um, they feel more comfortable with that and that's that's uh, more so simple and easy uh, for them. Oh, uh, um, when I was living in Thailand, the, the couple of years I was there, there there were not I wasn't in in monasteries that, I mean well, I was at Wapapong but you never saw the Meiji's there I was only there for about three months most of the time I was at then the little branch monastery up in Royet where I lived there was there weren't any nuns there but uh, I'd say 90% of my life as a monk has been in a double monastery and so that uh, I've always felt very comfy with that and I feel that that message that 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 gives to the world that you can uh, as a human being you can live um, in the company of of human beings of all varieties (laughs) and have your attention focused on spiritual development and that uh, it also can um, de uh, one of the things that you find at least in single male communities is is that um, the uh, the mind can can place women at a great, at a great distance so they 're both very di- very strange or, and very attractive or very mysterious when you all live together, then your more ordinary human qualities are apparent you know? it 's not so sort of uh, it 's not so mystifying or not so so strange the mind doesn 't project it 's like oh no it 's just um, uh, you know just ordinary human beings living together just have uh, and the, the the kind of um, uh, that that distance can sometimes make things the, the mind more prone to projection and and, and uh, imagination. When you're all living out close together, then it's there's a demystification, if you know that word. Um, just one la- last comment. Uh, when somebody was uh, asking, when, in the era when Ajahn Sujita was the mother superior and was sort of in charge of establishing the, the nuns' training for the... Lumpur Samedo had asked him to be in charge of helping the, the nuns' community to establish their, their uh, vineyard structure. And I was usually sitting with him um, as a sort of attendant when he had these uh, the vineyard sessions with the nuns' community. So that was the first seven years of, of Amravati, really. And uh, one day someone came and asked Ajahn Sajito, so you spend a lot of time with the nuns, Ajahn. You know, you're kind of, you're their teacher and their trainer. Yeah. Do you ever, I don't know if this is polite to ask, but do you ever have any kind of sort of uh, um, romantic feelings towards any of the nuns? And he, he said, ha! <laughs> <laughs> the person was quite shocked. He kind of just laughed in their faces. and Well, sometimes I'm... I think about taking a certain nun and throwing her through the window <laughs> and then watching the glass breaking and, kind of, and the body kind of falling in slow motion and crashing on the ground in the shards of... And this person's like... <laughs> <laughs> well, they asked. You know, but then he kind of realised he was getting a bit too imaginative with this sort of homicidal urges he said in short it's not a problem (laughs) so on that note we can uh, finish for the evening